Hello, aloha, and welcome to Cartel Aristocrats cast number, I don't know what it is. Um, I'm joined as always by my two co-hosts, Edwin of UnnamedGameShop.com and uh, Jimbo Casalsa of uh, CoolStuffInc.com. Did you just say aloha? Did you say aloha and you're in, you're in Mexico? Yes. You know that ola and aloha are not the same word. <laughs> Yes, but I he was just Al- in Maui. <laughs> he met Alola. He met Alola, Jim. Alola. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's right, also right. not and hello. <laughs> we also have... I thought Alola was hello. I thought, I thought Sun and Moon just said, like, Alola is also hello or goodbye. I thought they just copied it. Maybe. We're not we also have Pokemon. Douglas Johnson of Brainstorm Brewery, everybody, in case you yes. can tell by his sweatshirt. And, well, uh, I don't think people can read this back. one because this is, this is a bad one. This is, oh. the, uh, this is the Jason made an oopsie sweatsh- uh, sweatshirt. Because my, oh, yeah, gotta... my Cloud9 hoodie is in the wash, and I I would prefer not to wear this one because I don't like uh, hoodies that can't be zipped up, but I'm making do. Yeah, this yep. must be so, such a tragedy for you. Right? The gang is all back together, minus uh, Travis, but that's good. And, and Sig. Uh, and Sig. Yeah, and Sig, and um, we haven't been together for like a whole month. It's been weird. I've, I haven't looked at a magic card in a while. I'm turning into Marcel, um, but apparently there's stuff going on. The market's starting to heat back up. So, what do you guys want to talk about? You came here to talk to us about things. We did not come to you to talk about things. We talked about I stuff last week. Is. We talked about last week. Um, how did you feel Wizards of the Coast did with Magic? How, how, how do you feel like Magic was? Contrary to some people who made top five world-ending mistake videos about Wizards, 2018 was fantastic for Magic. Wait, this was a thing because I'm so out of the loop. It's great. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's, there's been some complaining about top five awful things Wizards did and, like, top ten miserable decisions. Hey, man, company, they, like... they put a $100 bill into every booster box that people yeah. found a way to complain about it. They so. did. Ultimate Masters, Ultimate Masters is one of the best things to happen to Magic. Arena is one of the best things to happen to Magic. Dominaria is one of the best things to happen to Magic. Uh, Magic's great. 2019's going to be great. Magic Fest is a bad name, but 2019's going to be great. I think that this year was an 11 for all of us in terms of how much money we made because all of us had... You made 11 whole dollars? I, I said an like 11, out of, 11 out of 10 that's, on the that's scale. That's not what you said. You said it's a lot, it was an 11 for all of us because we made $11 yeah. each. Is that how much we got from our non-existent Patreon? Yeah. No. Um, I mean, Doug and Ed and I had some cards that went up a lot this year that we've never seen before besides like 2013 with modern um the sets were okay um we didn't really get baited we didn't really get baited and switched on much uh rivals of ixalan came out in early 2018 right yeah rivals was the first set yeah so that was sort of a dud but um as ed had pointed out like the ev of that set was good back when the EV was like 40 or 50 around GPDC for opening a box, so... No, yeah, the set was the set itself was fine. It just still had to compete with uh, Kaladesh, right? It was just like a fine set that just happened to get pooped on by outside factors. 
We had um, Ixalan Biobox promos go insane earlier this year. We had Masterpieces go insane. Basically, if you owned any type of pimp card in Magic, you made a lot of money. So, oh, that's right. The Masterpiece spike was this year, too. Yep. That settled down uh, a lot, Master- though. Like, Chromatic Lantern went from, like, 40 to, like, 120, and now it's back to, like, 60 or 70. It's, like, stuff cracks. Stuff, you, you can't just, like, twist the market's arm and force Soul Ring to be $500. Yeah, you can't just go on a podcast and tell everyone to arbitrage the same card from Europe and then expect them all to find a different buyer for the same card. So, that, uh, that happens. Um, no, I don't know. I, I feel like financially this year won't be as good. Um, though this winter may have been good for all of us because prices were so low. So I think Arena's going to push this year. Yeah, it took Arena's up way less of our... Like, I think Arena is going to be another like Pools of the Planeswalkers <laughs> kind of thing where it's just like there's so many new people getting into the game. And I think Commander is really going to be where a lot of these people end up. I'm a big fan of um, whatever happens that prices are lower right now because more people can afford it and it doesn't hurt our bankrolls as much to like go in on like an unlimited Lotus like Doug did for an HP one, for example, that's not like a significant amount of it. Well, I mean, it, a Lotus, for example, is a significant amount of his budget, but with prices falling on pretty much everything, it it's less money out there. So um, that's good. Um, I don't think ultimate masters is going to rebound as much as um, modern masters one did. I, I keep seeing everyone's going to have uh, $400 boxes by like June but don't you guys think there's going to be another wave of Ultimate Masters if you talked about this last week, or do you think that they're done? Uh, we didn't talk about this in particular, but I can't imagine that they're going to do another wave of this. Like, maybe there's still a bunch left at like distributors or whatever, but I don't, I don't see yeah, the reason why they would make another wave. I don't think it's selling out, right? It's not like it's not selling out like Unstable did. It's not like they're they keep having to go to the printers and just quickly shoot out more. Like the the price was high enough that it was just a good a good number for like a regular set to sell out, right? It, it didn't like flop like iconic or masters twenty five, but I in my experience and in my data collection, it's just been like it's been good. I don't think they need to like rush out a second wave and crash the price of anything. Uh, a lot of evidence seems to suggest that it's actually running out at the distributor level that there isn't really more available for people to buy. I don't think like stores have gone through and just blown out their product the way that Battlebond and Unstable did during their respective uh, when when they were released. But obviously, the the higher price point makes it so that you have people who are buying a case of Unstable at a time. You don't really have people who are buying a case of Ultimate Masters at once. And I think now that we're kind of past the initial wave on it, a lot of the Ultimate Masters that's if the stores still have any available, they're probably going to be sitting on it for a decent amount of time. And it's one of those things where they'll definitely bleed it off slowly, but it's pe- the, uh, the number of people who are looking to just come into a store, buy a box for a gift or for opening or whatever, we're probably not too far away from being past that point. Yeah. I've never liked the whole uh, people asking me if they should buy a box to spec on or whatever for master sets, just because like, it, it the only ones that we've seen grow are like MM13 and MM17 really. So I don't really like people asking me if they should spend 230 on a box and then cross their fingers for two years. It's 
There's just better places to put your money. I agree, I agree, but like the other thing is you also have to like worry about each box is basically like it, it's just it's just a bomb, right? Like if so, if they reprint any of those cards again, then that tanks the value of the box because master sets for the most part don't have that like cult following for drafting also, which is like a thing that original Innistrad has, right? Like people right. buy boxes of original Innistrad despite the fact that the cards inside are not worth very much money or as much money as they used to be because a lot of them have been reprinted. A box, a sealed box of Innistrad is very desirable because people like to draft it. Yeah, there's not as much of a... Uh, for, like There are people who... There's a group of people who like to draft master sets, but that is spread out across all of the master sets. There's not like one... Um, Pinnacle master set drafting that really captures it all, I think. MM1, if you can afford it, is by far the best. It is good. That yeah, is but very like good that's that, that's what we're saying is like buying new boxes of master sets doesn't have the same effect, so don't do it. Yep. I think uh, 2018 was the year that we saw, like if we're looking back, since you guys didn't get my views last week, and I know Doug and Ed can probably chime in on this, 2018 was the year where we saw a lot of big-name vendors scale back their cash buy prices but keep their credit buy prices rather high. And it'll be interesting to see in 2019 what happens, not necessarily with Grand Prix vendors, but for sites like Channel Fireball, Star City, ABU, Channel Fireball is the only one that's actually paying realistic cash prices out of the big three right now, right? ABU's on, on, not even a real thing, right? In allegedly. Like... Alleg allegedly. Yeah. Uh, ABU offers a very generous trade number, but their prices are also 20% above the market. 20% so, is generous. On stuff I've looked at, uh, it's been around 20%. I've, I've looked in the past, and they've, they've had like... $90 Tarmogoyf or something when TCG is 50 or 60. It's like... Yeah, but they take crypto. That's what matters. So, those, you know. Um, it's just going to be interesting to see uh, putting Grand Prix vendors like Doug and Ed aside where online buyers shift. Because I don't know if stores aren't managing their capital right or if um, the cards just aren't moving as fast as they used to. But across the board, for the most part, besides like specifically Channel Fireball on a only online vendor focused thing, we're seeing buy prices for cash drop across the board and a bigger shift to credit. Dropped. I don't think Card Kingdom's dropped at all. I haven't noticed a difference there. Have you noticed a difference in grading from 2017 no. to 2018? Not at all? I mean, my grading, their grading's improved for me just because I think Card Kingdom, among other sites, have a system where. As you progressively send them more things, they will level you up in their system internally. And so I think that leads to a uh, sort of an expediting process of like getting your buy list uh, put through and just sort of like a quicker grading system as opposed to like sort of just a trust based, oh, he sent us X thousand dollars of stuff. Like it's probably going to be this, 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 and this. And then they, I don't know. So Car Kingdom's grading has improved for me over the past year. Interesting. I feel like it's hard to always get a near mint grade on cards above ten dollars by them, and that when sending them in, I'm just expecting a cut down to their LP. Well, I guess that's the thing. I don't uh, send them cards above ten dollars very often. My I send them like medium flat rates of like dollar cards. <laughs> yeah, but that that's where the real money is, right? Like 
I go, I do what some people on this cast may or may not do on a smaller scale. And like sometimes I'll pick up cards in Japan and send them to Card Kingdom. And even if they're Japanese met, they'll still get marked as LP. And uh, you know, I have to go and say, hey, these aren't LP. Like, can you regrade them, please? That's weird. So, yeah. Uh, but do you think that with more people finding out about the blueprint and more people taking the BSB slash like what pays your bills route, Doug, that it's going to be harder for people to uh, make money on like the cards that buy us from nickels to quarters? Or do you think that with more people sharing this information, the market becomes more efficient and more of these cards get out to the players that need them? Even if people know about it, I don't think they're going to they use that or take advantage of it. I think inherently people are just less willing to put in that grind work for such uh, a small amount percentage wise compared to like what they're like people just don't want to look for through 5,000 count boxes all day for $30 worth of stuff. So even if people know that like, Oh yeah, this has probably got nickels and dimes. Like I think people will always just like chip it off. Okay. Just seems interesting. That's all. Because there's more and more finance people, finance podcasts, finance personalities that are saying, you know, hey, you should look at MTG Blueprint. I, there was an article posted yesterday that I have to read still where, like, a guy explained how to use uh, Thomas Dodd's MTG Blueprint to, like, effectively make money on your bulk commons on commons that you guys probably might have read. Um, what site was it on? It's just it. Uh, it's on the MTG Finance Central Facebook group. That is why I didn't see it. Yeah. So it's just interesting because it feels like there's always going to be like a couple thousand people hustling on the side or like hustling full time on uh, smaller end cards. But like if there's too many people doing it at the same time, do like companies scale back or does it just create a more efficient market, which means that they can afford to pay the same rate because they're consistently getting more for the players that need them. Because like take a card like Shadowborn Apostle, for example, like ignoring the command zone, which is where I think it spiked, right? Up to like four bucks. It yes. was really yep. hard for shot it was really hard for shops to keep that card in stock even when it was two dollars. And like right before the buyout, a lot of shops didn't have more than like two play sets of them, which is like theoretically what you would open in like a M fourteen booster box in the common slot, like one in every three packs or something. Um but with uh with shops not being able to keep them in stock and not as many people back then knowing that Shadowborn Apostle was a pick, even when it was a common, does better information about all these commons, like with bio scrapers and all that, mean that shops now are able to stock them cards like Shadowborn Apostle better because players now know they're worth money, which means shops sell through them faster because players need an infinite amount of them for their decks. Or is it, oh shit, we bought $1,200 worth of Shadowborn Apostles, like we have to put these on sale because everyone keeps sending them to us. So it's just interesting. And I obviously don't run a giant online business, so I, I don't know what's going to happen, but it's just interesting to see what people are going to do with all this information in 2019. I mean, in 2018, we had apps come along that let you price cards just by looking at them. Are they as fast as Doug or Ed when they're going through five rows? No. But for the casual armchair financier, it makes them a lot better at picking bulk. So it'll be interesting to see what happens this year as technology progresses. So that's, that's just thoughts. You know, I haven't really looked at much in the last three weeks because I've been on vacation. So it's been real nice. 
I think a short counterpoint to your example about trying to draw attention to some of these cards. I think some of these cards are valuable or they're MTG finance secrets as they were because a lot of people don't necessarily know about them. I think a lot of these cards, I want to say like a lot of people who got in as it were, they were able to capitalize on a lot of people not necessarily knowing what the value of cards were, which is something that's obviously gone by the wayside, right? But I want to say a lot of stores, right? Like for us, it's obvious we know things like the top tier level of commander cards tend to be a lot of bread and butter for for vendors because those are types of things that you can move in large volume and they generally have pretty large margins, right? Most of us can buy Cabal Coffers, Doubling Seasons, etc. These cards move in large quantities um, with a fairly good margin because you have people who don't care, who might not realize that Cabal Coffers is $20. Uh, uh, doubling Season, Jesus Christ, is $30. You know, cards like Shield Dread, most people would just interpret... If you weren't an EDH player, most people probably wouldn't think too highly of a card like Shield Dread, but Shield Dread is probably the best-selling Praetor. It might be Vorn Clicks. Um, I think Vorn Clicks is better. Sure. So, like, Shield Dread and Vorn Clicks, like, they're both in the same boat. Like, just, like, these very, very good uh, legendary cards only see casual play, but we could easily churn through hundreds of them, right? If someone came up to me at Grand Prix and said... I've been hoarding these since Iconic Masters first came out. I have like 300 Shieldreds. That's something that's easy to buy because it's a lot of copies of one card, but it'll definitely sell out over time. Um, but now like with more and more information being available, it's harder and harder to find these types of cards that are kind of hidden gems um, that you can get away with paying relatively little on That because simply because people don't know about them. Um, so I'm like a little wary of information getting out there too quickly it's kind of the same issue that we had earlier this year when wizards said that they were going to cut back on the amount of uh data they provide via magic online or whatever because uh their claim was that formats were getting solved too quickly um by constantly publishing you know the 5-0 deck list from leagues and events or whatever it was just creating a very homogenized uh online meta um I kind of want to say that what you're saying, Jeremy, is we're getting down to that same path. If you look at like Bylas, if you look at Hot Bylas, especially like when I was in Vancouver this weekend, I had noticed that a lot of vendors on their hot lists, mainly like the Canadian ones, the ones that don't get out a lot, people are generally trying to get the same cards because people know that those do well and everyone's, it feels like everyone's fighting for the same few and Bylas just like aren't as strong as they were previously. Um, that's how I would interpret your point, Jeremy. I think it's a bit of a counterpoint, but I think there's validity to both sides. Obviously, both for information getting out there for people and just uh, people not necessarily wanting to spill their secrets, as it were. Yeah, I mean, because there's benefits to putting cards like Vorinclex and Perforos and like uh, Diabolic Intent or whatever on your hot list for competitive players, because if you don't have those cards in your hot list, you don't, those players don't stop by your booth. Like, you want those people to see, like, oh, wait, they're paying what on Perforos? That's really weird. And then, like, they, they come in, and then you get to look at the rest of the binder, too. Right, but Perforos, like, that one's not super well-hidden anymore, right? But these are the types of cards that you would be able to buy anyways, right? Like, why are people necessarily drawing attention 
to these cards when you could be paying less on them as opposed to putting them on well, your buy list. Even if you don't pay, put attention to them. What's up? Sorry. If, uh, if they're if they're not well known cards, then people won't like think about bringing them out or bringing them up to you. So you want people to draw attention to them, and you want to at least pay a better number than people would think they're worth. To just put it on your hot list, and then people are like, "Oh, wait, Rhystic studies what?" Or oh, I mean, you don't you don't actually even need to pay what? above what you normally would pay on certain cards because just by having them on your hot list as yeah, a, just on any number, like they're definitely competitive players that just don't understand they don't understand cards outside of what's in their competitive realm yeah so they don't know how much a uh razaketh the flat foul-blooded is you yeah know, maybe, exactly. they did a, maybe they did a shit ton of of amonkhet drafts and they have all these bulk rares and mythics and you're like you put you just put an average price up for one of these things like razaketh and people are like oh i could get three four five whatever however many dollars it is for one of them and then they'll go over to your booth. I think that's what Doug is trying to say. Yeah, like Razak is a great example where you just have standard players who would not even walk up to your booth or binder unless they see it. They're like, wait, Razak I get $4 for $5 for? Sure. And then bring them over. So I like putting those not well-known cards on your hot list just because I think it actually it's benefits you instead of like sharing trade secrets or whatever. I One of the other things we should probably touch on. One that, Ed, go ahead. You get, you, get, you get a counterpoint. Sorry, uh, I, I missed the end of Doug's point, but I was basically just going to say, drawing attention to these cards, are you necessarily buying appreciably more copies of these cards than if you didn't have them on your hot list? Yes. Right? Like con- Stuff like Conjurer's Closet, stuff like Fraying Sanity, um, those are fantastic cards that we love to have on our hot list just because we don't see them if we don't have them on our hot list. <laughs> In my experience, it's been I've been able to just just you'll find them naturally in binders anyways. I would say that the type of people that have a bunch of those, the type of people that have like a lot of porphoroses, a lot of you know Frank Sandys, Conjurer's closets, they're generally going to be like the dealer types anyways. Either stores looking to turn over some of their inventory, or people like me who know specifically to be pulling out these cards. Um, right, like I've definitely been by the ninety five booth to dump cards before. And yeah. I have a lot of quantities of the same cards because I know about them, yeah. right? Whereas I don't think like outside of people, you know, people like Jeremy, people like me dumping cards, you're necessarily going to have a lot of these car- cards come in instantly, whether or not you draw attention to them. That's been my experience. Oh, Jesus. Uh, we had this, uh, we've had this debate before frequently about like the validity on having like hot bias and what cards are actually worth putting on them. And uh, my like my train of thought is generally I want to be putting on cards that people will likely have. Uh, so Vancouver, for example, I thought it would have been good for the vendors who are there instead of putting their normal buy lists, which is fine to have buy lists for uh, like every ultimate masters, mythic and rare and box hoppers because that was the majority of what people were trying to sell because most people, they were just coming over I played in the PTQ. This is my sealed pool. Buy these cards, or yep. they acquired. Like those are the things that I would think are more relevant to hot lists. But again, it's one of those your mileage. No, for Vancouver, I can definitely understand that strategy. Um, um, there's also validity to like not wanting to fight with another vendor if they are pay way, way, way too aggressively on certain formats or cards. Like Montreal is a good example where face to face is just trying to like 
blow everybody out of the water with some absurd bio list on certain cards, and then you just try to like find the cards they're not paying on, and then just like get those ones instead and put those on your hot list. So, yep, I, I think there's like both uh, valid points. It's just it's just how you want to how how you want to approach your strategy for the GP, I guess. Something we should probably talk about that affects 99% of our listeners instead of 1% of our listeners, while well, I can't believe I'm the one reeling the cast back in a bit, is um, in 2018, dis- distribution was eliminated uh, directly from Wizards for standard legal booster boxes. And at the same time that shops became compelled to increase their booster box prices or, or take a slightly smaller profit margin, we had mega stores like um, sports uh, and more, sports and more on e- on eBay sell boxes with basically coupons for less than what the shops themselves were able to buy them for. How do you guys feel about the fact that distribution was cut from your LGS directly from Wizards? And have you guys noticed anything in the back half of this year that has affected you either positively or negatively when it comes to buying sealed product or the price of singles? Well, my experience is going to be a little bit different because my local game store is Cool Stuff and they are a very large company that has no problem securing large amounts of sealed product and often has it all in stock. So uh, my my experience, I think, is a lot different than usual. I think the last time that Cool Stuff ran out of sealed product for a set was unstable i think they were out for like a week or two uh like right after release and then previous to that like i think the last time was like og innistrad like it doesn't happen very often i haven't noticed really any drastic changes or differences i mean i've personally taken advantage of those sports and more coupons for sure and um i think that if you are a small time lgs who would be getting those or would be having to compete with those sports and more sales. I think you should just take advantage of them yourself. Like if you're in a small time LGS and you can get boxes for like 73 or 74 and your distributors telling you 79, like just use it and then sell boxes for 90 something. Or I don't know. I haven't done as much work with an LGS this past year. Uh, so I'm slowly drifting away from that side of things. It- it's been very lucrative to be away from an LGS for 2018. I think we can all agree on that. Yes. There's better, better opportunities with your time. Ed? I think the most relevant bit about Watsi shutting off distribution direct to stores, and I think it's starting to catch on to people, is that there, people no longer have access to foreign product. It's one of those things people have kind of – I've heard people asking about it, just on the offhand, and the answer basically just boils down to there's foreign product just isn't available in the USA anymore because Watsi was the easiest way to get foreign product before it was allocated, but that allocation generally didn't matter because most people weren't ordering a ton of product at once anyways. They're ordering one case at a time, letting the boxes slowly sell through for the customers that actually cared about having Russian cards or Japanese cards or whatever. And then until that was gone, there was no need to order more. And I imagine a lot of distributors probably got burned on it because they ordered it from Watsi. And because Watsi just sold it cheaper, um, 
distributors had a hard time selling it to the stores and then in turn they were getting burned on it and eventually by Watsi just kind of shutting it off and just not making it available it just kind of closed the avenue for people um i've had an increasing number of people asking me to get japanese product for them and it's one of those things where it's fairly expensive now it's no longer feasible to get foreign product at the same rate as english product which was often the case for people because it costs us the same to get it through Watsi. Um, now, if people are wanting Japanese products, people are basically paying the shipping costs from Japan or you know European languages from Europe or whatever, in addition to paying the customs fee and then whatever profit margin on top. And most people seem to be deterred by that and just they'll just save the money and get English product instead or people are just wanting specific singles now. Hot take in 2019, foreign multipliers will continue to decrease for foils. I mean, I think that just in general, foreign cards are not particularly desirable once you realize how much harder it is to get rid of them. Like, yes. There are certain people... I was going to get into this, Jim. We, there's, a, there's a thing on, MTG Finance, on the MTG Finance Facebook group where I said that Russian foils are going to continue falling because everyone's trying to get out of them right now and no one wants to buy them. I mean, that's that's what it is, right? Like, yeah, they're super, super, super rare, but, like, so are the people that want to buy them. Like, I don't, I don't know what you're supposed to do with them. Like, I, I foolishly opened a Korean box of Cons of Tarkir and I have a Korean foil wooded foothills. Since the day I opened it, literally no one has asked me about it. I've tried to sell it multiple times. Nobody wants it for any reasonable number. So it's just like, it's impossible to get rid of. Like, yeah, it's a wooded foothills. I could use it in my, in my deck as a wooded foothills. But if you bought the booster box or you bought the product with the intention of reselling it for any kind of markup, it's basically impossible to get rid of. I agree. And right now, specifically in the Russian languages, because, you know, I I got into that pretty heavily last year. Uh, there's a lot of vendors that are trying to get out of it. And it, there's not that many people that want to buy Russian foils specifically uh, because of how much higher the markup is than everything else for any other language. So it's going to be interesting. Yeah, I, I I imagine that it's pretty hard to find someone that specifically wants Russian over other languages that just like doesn't already live in Russia and buy Russian cards from their LGS or however they're distributed there. Just as like anecdotal evidence, like Russian cards were flying off the shelves up until like April of 2018. And then people started chasing the reserve list instead because the profit margins were better or for whatever reason. And you had cases where, like, vendors like 95 had um, a set of the original Russian foil Zendikar fetch lands. And that, that should be, like, one of the easiest foils to move at any number because they go in cube, EDH, modern, and legacy. And that's basically, like, the maximum spread of uh, any uh, foreign foil would be that it could go in any, in any format because it, it's legal in all of those and played as a four of and every single week at every different grand prix 95 would try and sell me those same russian foil cards and it was the same with other staples for other vendors we have um, those they, for they, years, though. yeah you guys have them forever so 
it, but like if the multiplier held true, Doug, for those specific cards, yeah. because they're legal and everything, they should have sold before oh, a year. Yeah. And I shouldn't have like been offered the different number every time I came up to the booth. Yeah. No, so, I, I agree. Um, so yeah, it's just interesting. And like, obviously their Japanese is a little more palatable to flip because the multiplier is not as high. It's a little more popular than Russian. But um, I think I recall Ed saying last year that like it was getting harder and harder to move stuff, but he can still do okay sometimes if he gets like Russian. I think Ed went pretty deep on on a sorry Japanese M25 like common and uncommon foils because they weren't really worth that much, Ed. And like you thought you could move them, but you underestimated how low demand would be or something. Does that sound right? Or am I completely off base? No, no. I still have like a fair amount of A25 Japanese foils. A lot of them, it seemed like that I was trying to kind of ride the popper wave. I thought that things like pillage savannah lions i can't think of what else these types of cards that that's the issue those cards are just bad and popper uh sure there, <laughs> there were uh, some of them were i think first what was i can't re- i can't remember my rationale but there I were think... a couple first no there like were you're correct Ashburns was good yeah i got Ashburns. i think fertile ground was another one you picked up at i know you got some bloodbraid elves yeah, that would have been. Yeah, Myriad Landscape was another one that was yeah. okay. I called that one too. It's pick of the week, like a yeah. year ago. Yeah, a fair amount of them like did okay. Uh, I think I still do fairly okay with these lower level reprint cards. Most of them, most of those cards, people will still pick up at a reasonable rate. Agent Stirrings is one that's fairly popular, mainly because yeah. the multiple. The multiplier isn't super high, and people can afford to, if they are wanting something that's shiny and they want the foil, it's it's really only about 10% or so more than an English foil. And when people see that, then it's, like Jeremy said, it's a little bit more, it's a little bit more tolerable to be paying that premium as opposed to Russian, for example. You're paying some ridiculous premium. 25 times at least on some stuff or or whatever it is uh yeah uh and i think just for the most part sticking to the master sets i've been able to do decently well on and again generally it's on the lower things i have some i have some stuff from ultimate masters that granted i haven't really made a huge effort to move but i imagine i would be somewhat hard pressed to find someone who wants you know full japanese dark depths the art is cool, but when you can get the English foil for someone help me out here, I don't, I don't, I don't 30, know. Thirty, like thirty for from the vault or whatever, like whatever. Uh, uh, for you, for UMA foil. Oh out. no, clue. I haven't, I haven't. I literally the set came out and I took off, so I'm the worst person to ask. Uh, right. So I, I haven't looked at that card, but if we English is like twenty five to thirty, I imagine the foil. Has a decent premium because the art is cool. It's new art, etc. So even if There's we also that, a topper, right? So even if we say the English foil is like fifty, for example, it's gonna be a hard time to convince someone to pay two hundred on the dark depths, which is what the Japanese foil is worth. Um, whereas, like in the case of ancient stirrings, paying an extra few dollars per each copy that that's much easier for people to do. So, all right, 
let's get into our last uh, big topic because this is either coming in 2019 or 2020, depending. I think we can all agree on this. What happens to Magic in the next recession? And where are you putting your money? Cash. Is that a bad idea? I don't know. No. I, I like that one, Jim. Doug? Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm selling all of the cards that I have that I don't need uh, relatively soon uh, and, just having, and just having money. Don't sell that uh, wedding gift, Jim. I will be. I will take extreme offense to that. I don't think you can find a buyer for it. But... I yeah, I was about to say. I don't think I can. We just talked about how impossible it is to get rid of those things. Uh, yeah. And I would never sell Aww. a wedding gift that someone <laughs> gave me. Um, but yeah. if you need some Magic: The Gathering coasters, let me know. Ooh, hey. ooh that that hurts. I'm I'm joking. Doug. I'm joking. At some point, regardless of who's president and what politics are in the air, there will be a recession. And what do you think will happen to Magic? And where are you putting your money? Magic's going to do fine. That's it? Magic's fine. Like, enter- like, isn't it the, uh, the golden rule that entertainment and uh, luxury stuff like that just goes up during a recession just because people want to escape their less than ideal realities for something that they can afford. I mean, but magic is a pretty expensive uh, hobby. Depending on how you play it. I agree. But like, if you, if you have like, if you're looking for the most value in like the amount of time of entertainment you'll get per dollar spent, like video games are almost assuredly more. Right. Like arena palatable. Or board games because those saw a sure. huge resurgence during the last recession. I agree and that cash is king. I think to elaborate on Doug's point, I am more inclined to agree with him than with Jim. I if we draw a parallel to like 2008 when we had the housing market crash, that was the last real global recession that we had it. Uh, that most of us have been through, for example. Granted, most of us are probably a little bit young. I was in college at the time. I was in my undergrad. You were 50, right? Yes, 50. Uh, I was doing my undergrad, and I vaguely remember thinking, maybe because specifically living in Portland, Oregon, we weren't quite we weren't hit quite as bad as places as such as Detroit, for example, where where the la- the labor there is different, but my parents still had their jobs. We weren't, you know not knowing where the, our next meal was coming from. I imagine that's not the case. I realize like a lot of people had their homes foreclosed on, et cetera. It was, it was, I'm, not, I'm not trying to say it wasn't a rough time, um, but I remember not being heavily affected by it. And I imagine a lot of people who, who the majority of the Magic player base, if we were to go to a reception, recession right now, which... You know, I, I think it's a very real possibility. I think the stock market had like their worst, was it their worst day, their worst single day. They were down 5% uh, worldwide last Friday, I think. Um, like most people just aren't going to be naturally affected. Um, right? Like it sucks if you're going to lose your job or whatever, but a lot of people are already in a position where rent, we see more people moving back in to live with their parents than we have in past years. Um, people are trying to cut costs whatever way they can, mainly because it's getting so expensive to live. 
And I think, like Doug said, if you're playing Magic and you're a kitchen level player, as it were, not you know someone who is trying to grind week in week out to make the pro tour, flying around the country playing at Star Cities and Grand Prix or whatever, Magic is for the most part fairly affordable. It's it's more or less along the lines of a video game where once you get past your initial investment of building your commander deck, building your kitchen table deck, or slowly working your way up towards a modern deck, there isn't really a lot of upkeep that you continually have to continuously have to pay into magic unless you're trying to play standard, trying to draft week in, week out or whatever. And along if you're if we're looking at hobbies that people partake in, it's far more affordable to be playing magic than to go out to your golf course and shoot golf for an afternoon, go out to movies, eating out, whatever. Um, so I think I'm with Doug on this one. I think there's no real need to panic. Um, it's a good time to buy collections from people who are, uh, who who are more, yeah, yeah, who are who are definitely more strapped for money. People who lost their jobs or are just much they they can't really afford uh, the luxuries of Magic, as it were. But for example, it worked out really well for the Europeans because when the U.S. was in was hit hardest by a recession um, and the euro was trading much stronger against the dollar, they were just buying up dual lands, old school cards, all these cards left and right. And for the longest time, it was uh, they benefit they benefit heavily from it, um, and that's why we see. And I think that's a big part of why we see like uh, old school legacy vintage be much more prevalent in Europe than it is here mainly because they've had that supply there for such a long time. That's a great point. In worst case, Doug can go sell solar if uh, his magic job falls through. So <laughs> he's got that backup plan. Um, yeah, it's just interesting. Um, I mean, there wasn't even a recession in November, December of this year, and the amount of collections coming in was just absolutely insane. So during an actual recession, for people that, have money actually saved in their piggy bank instead of spending their paycheck on booster boxes, it can be a good time to buy stuff. Provided, of course, that you're insulated enough for a recession. But we are not an actual finance podcast or a magic finance podcast. So you, our listeners, do your investing your own way. That we, we can't give you advice on that stuff. We're not fiduciaries. Um, but it's, it's just going to be interesting to see what happens um, in the future in the next year or two. And if a recession happens, what does wizards do to try and keep their shareholders happy? If people aren't buying booster packs every week after F and M. So it'll be interesting to see. I mean, do you guys think that there's a real possibility? Oh wait, never mind. I don't want to talk about the reserve list getting broken in the next recession. That's too clickbaity of a topic. And I think we all sort of feel the same way. So pick of the week. Eh? Yes. Yeah, it's ready for this, right? I'm ready. Ooh. Ed, what's your All right, Ed. Go for it. Uh, so for people who are looking at standard right now, Ravnica Allegiance spoilers start tomorrow. I imagine we'll start seeing some big mythic or some something big splotchy that will have, you know, grouching effects on standard. That's what Wizards wants us to believe. Uh, that that will probably push uh, some standard cards over top whenever we see that happen. I think Legion Warboss is a reasonable spec right now. 
It started much higher than it is, uh, for anyone who doesn't know. It is a rare from Guilds of Ravnica. It's the Goblin Rabble Master Analog. A lot of people were pretty high on this card when it first came out. It's done nothing but slide, mainly because there hasn't really been a home for it. It wouldn't surprise me if we saw this card, you know, on a very basic level, it works well with, uh, with Afterlife, with Orzov. Um... You have more or less just token, uh, flying tokens that generally works well with Mentor. Again, it's a relatively simplistic way of looking at it, but your buy-in for this, if you're looking on TCG, if I look at the first page, there is uh, one vendor, the Mighty Meeple, whoever that is. They have 19 copies available for $1.67, shipping included. Um, I'm tempted to buy this. It's much more expensive than the... Uh, cheaper copies that people have listed you can find it as low as like a dollar a dollar thirty uh this gets me 19 in one place at once and this is 30 about 35 dollars to get 19 copies of these uh relatively low gamble the payoff probably isn't gonna be insane even if it works out it's probably like five to six dollars which isn't necessarily worth a lot but even if someone wants even if someone hasn't uh doesn't own them already Spending eight dollars to get a place that and just get out of the way, probably not the worst thing you can do. I like that. Uh, I am going to go with I'm repeating a pick from BSB from about a month ago, but I still like it, and I'm actually surprised it hasn't gone up yet because a card that is similar to it did go up, and that is Archive Trap. Uh, Mill got a new tool with mission briefing in GRN, and people were playing with it for a while for a few weeks. There were a couple content creators who came out with videos that had uh, Mission Briefing combined with Archive Trap and a Mono Blue Shell because Mission Briefing differs from Sapcaster and that it lets you cast Archive Trap for its free cost if the condition has been met. So you can Archive Trap them, Mission Brief Archive Trap them. Uh, and this goes with Trap Finder's trick. Uh, Sanity Grinding was the card that jumped initially uh, because that's from Eventide and has no reprints and is a 4 of. And Archive Trap is also a 4 of and has no reprints. And so this is a card where I'm just very surprised that it's not like a $20 S card like Mesmeric Orb. Uh, and it is kind of at a reasonable reprint risk in like something, but it's probably not going to go to Commander deck. It has the trap mechanic, which could theoretically be reprinted in like another Zendikar set, but I highly doubt they do that. Um, so yeah, it's just a very hard card to reprint. And I'm just surprised that Archive Trap is not like 16 or $20. So... Also, Trap Finder's I, Trick. I think that card goes to like a dollar eventually. Or no, the Trapmaker Snare. Trapmaker Snare is the one that's... I don't even play Modern or watch Modern, but I know that there is a Modern deck on Star City for one of the Invitationals towards the end of the year that played Archive Trap with Mission Briefing and did well on camera. So, someone's yeah, playing it, Doug. Because the, the original list for Mill before this uh, Mission Briefing was blue-black, and it would play like... Glimpse the Unthinkable and Fatal Pushes and Ensnaring Bridge. And it was a little bit more controlly in that, like, you could sometimes just slow the game down with Fraying Sanity and, like, grind them out at turn six or seven. Uh, but this mono blue version is much more aggressive and streamlined in that you're just trying to just get him on, like, turn two or three with double Archive Trap, Hedron Crab, a lot of fetch lands, um, Sanity Grinding for as high as 14 or 15. Just, like, just get him. Just like a blue burn deck. So. Archive Trap is uh, $10. It is a little high buy-in. It's not something you want to buy like a ton of. 
but just if you don't have your set and you were thinking about playing Mill, it is definitely the next card in the deck to spike. Jim? Uh, my pick this week is another card from Standard because I think it's a card that's a little underrated as far as its, uh, we'll say, wide appeal. Uh, I think Discovery Dispersal is going to be one of those cards that's going to be like 2 or $3 eventually. Uh, not If not like this year, then maybe the, the next year or the year after because it's a very versatile tool. Um, I think even in the next set, it could be like $1.50 or $2 if some kind of blue base control deck or black base control deck comes to fruition because you really don't need to play the dispersal part. The discovery part's quite good. And because it's a blue-black hybrid mana, uh, it can go in a lot of different decks. So I think it's one of those cards that people are going to wish that they own more of come uh, the end of this spoiler season. Like, if there's, for instance, an Orzov deck, like, this this looks like a blue card and acts like a blue card, but you could play it with just black mana. And I think that's big enough that you should be looking at this as a blue or black card, not a blue and black card. And with having all 10 uh, Shocklands now available, having three color mana bases or whatever will just be much easier. So we see a lot of like the blue, uh, blue red, is it Drake decks? Most of them just play like one Dragon Skull Summit or something just to be able to cast a buck in, in the event that it ever does come up. Probably not a requirement, probably a little bit too cute, but the fact that it's hybrid mana on one side and actually blue and black on the other makes it relatively free. I, I think I, I, I do like that pick. My pick of the week is any reserve list card that fell back down to its original price after its spike. Flared Academy, yeah, well, I was like, wow. Well, survival. Wow. Someone, someone didn't try at all. Nope. <laughs> Not even like there a is... card? Not even like a card, just a concept. My pick of the week is a concept. Buy cards that are low, I... sell cards that are high. My week, I'm Sigmund this week. I'm just calling the reserve list. So that's not a thing uh, you can do. That's not a pick of the week. That's like a uh, pick of the whole of your life savings forever. I picked UMA oh. cards last week. That that worked out well. <laughs> I just generally said buy UMA cards. I I did pick a few, but I generally just said pick UMA cards last week. Yep. Um, My box hoppers are next reserve list card. You heard it here first. Yeah. Um, I feel like if there's something similar to Thran Dynamo and Ultimate Mat Oh, Eternal Witness. Did that go back up yet? Uh, no. I, it's, I it's still three to f is it still three to four dollars? I wanna say it's a little bit lower than that. I think All right, my, my pick is Eternal Witness from Ultimate Masters then. This should rebound pretty fast like it always does. Uh, I don't yeah, I was gonna say I think Leaf Dog is only like two bucks. Okay. Oh no, they're a little expensive. They're the lowest on TCG players, three seventy one. Okay, I think it hit six again by the end of twenty nineteen. So that oh, should be solid. an easy double up. All right, where can people find you guys? I'm at Edwin thirteen on Twitter, and I will be in Oakland this weekend to start off two thousand nineteen. See you there. Damn it. You sound so excited. My name is Jim Kasai. You can find me on Twitter at PHROSD underscore. You can find my articles at coolstuffinc.com. 
Uh, this was DJ Johnson. I'm on Twitter at Rose of Thorns, and you can find me on the Brainstorm Brewery podcast, which comes out every Friday or Thursday to patrons. Uh, you can find me behind the 95 MPG booth at GPs. I will not be in Oakland, but I will be in Jersey, Toronto. See you there. Woo! Jersey, Toronto, Tampa Bay, Memphis. Uh, and yeah, that's about it. I will also probably be in Tampa because it's Ooh. close enough for me to drive. Hell yeah. Is it better to fly to Orlando and drive, or is it easier to just directly fly to Tampa? I think Tampa is a pretty big airport. You shouldn't have problems flying into there, but it's not an unreasonable drive if you wanted it. If it works out better for you that way, it's like an hour to it's like an hour and a half to two hours depending on traffic. Ask Corbin. Yeah, it's like three hundred dollars. <laughs> it's like three hundred dollars less to fly into Orlando, Ed, if you're flying American because it's a hub. Right, that that was the biggest thing I was asking. I was asking less about the uh, how long it takes, how difficult it is. More like Orlando is just a big enough hub, especially for Delta, that it's always been relatively cheap to fly to Orlando. I haven't tried to fly to Tampa yet, so that's that's why I'm inquiring. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't. I've only flown into Tampa one time. Um, I don't remember a whole lot about it, but if if you're flying, if you are thinking about flying into Orlando, it's not that far. It's not far enough away that I would advise against it. And I'm Jeremy. You can find me. Well, I'll be back with normal audio next week. I finally have to get back to the the real life, but it was fun while it lasted. Um, I'll be at basically the whatever Grand Prix these guys are going to. Boom. So, yeah. I for Jersey, I know I'll be there Thursday through Saturday and then I'm leaving Saturday night. Um and shout out because I haven't been on a cast for a month. I was at GP Portland and a lot of cartel people said hi. So I appreciate that. Um So thanks for listening, guys. Uh Jim, do you want to do the awesome exit since uh you're driving the train? Thanks for joining us this week, friends. I am not going to say what Jeremy says, so have a good